But anyway, that's not the subject of this evening's talk. Somebody was asking me just beforehand, I'd love to actually try and do something different, a different type of talk. And the subject they wanted me to, to talk about this time was just about you know, how much can the mind create? How much do you actually create your reality? And they were mentioning that there are a few times in, in Buddhism, this is classical Buddhism, where the Buddha talked about mind-made worlds. But that was specifically referring to heavenly realms and even like hell realms. And especially just to say a few silly things about hell realms, sometimes that I wondered about hell realms, I don't know if I told the story about, sometimes it's not just hot realms, even cold hell realms as well. Did I tell the story about those two men who supported uh, the Fremantle Dockers? That's one of the football teams over here. Over here, oh, I'm going to tell it again anyway because it's a, it's a funny story. That these two men from Fremantle, or Fremantle Dockers fans, I don't know what they did, but they ended up in a hell realm somewhere. And so it was really hot in there. But you know, these were young men, they're used to the hot weather in Western Australia, said, oh, this is not so bad. It's a bit warm, but you know, it's very warm. You know, just working in the mines up north sometimes in Western Australia. So they're working very hard, and this um, devil fellow saw that he wasn't making much of an impression on these two, so he turned the temperature up. He said, oh, this is really nice, this is like working in Broome. And so it turned the temperature up even more. Oh, this is like working up in, the, in Alice Springs or somewhere. This is really nice. And he said, how can I get through to these people? So that's when the devil turned the temperature right down. And so that it got ice everywhere in hell. And these two men, they were jumping up and down for joy. And I can't figure out these two people, said that devil. And so he asked them, well, why are you so happy now? He said, well, we always knew that Fremantle football Dockers team would win the grand final when hell freezes over. <laughs> so, so, so that's what's happened. Yay, go the Dockers. <laughs> but anyway, those are supposed to be like realms which are mind created. It's you know, what you feel you need and require. And it's the same with um, the heaven realms. Yeah, those heaven realms do exist, but you create them. How you want them. What would you want for delight and pleasure? What you think is your reward? Because the mind has that power to do those things, but you don't really know that until maybe, you know, a future life. But let's just talk about this world. How much of this world do you create? And of course, there's a huge amount of it. You don't really create what's so much on the outside. What you do create is how you relate to it, what you make of it. And that is the most important part. A classic story which makes this you know, quite clear was that story of when, as Buddhist monks, we go into prisons. One of the monks will be in Carnate Prison Farm this evening talking, that's when we'll ride this evening, you know, right now. And we've been doing this for years and years and years, not just in Carnate Prison Farm, that's just you know, next door to us, but also to many of the other prisons in the world. And this one monk, years ago, was in one of these prisons, and the prisoners asked him, so what's it like in a Buddhist monastery? I know before I remember showing some of the prisoner disciples a little video, I had to get permission from the, the head of the prison the, to show this little video of a monastery in Japan. You know those Zen monasteries where the meditation master would go around behind people and whack them on the back if they fell asleep. There was someone snoring during the meditation, but don't worry, I will never do that to you. <laughs> you have kindness instead. 
I remember the prisoners were my disciples. There were some violent people there. And they said, oh, don't you ever try that, Ajahn Brahm. We're much bigger than you are. <laughs> but you know, when you get to uh, know people and they regard them as friends, rather than you look down upon them as you're the teacher and they're the people you're supposed to be listening. That those, you get a, a relationship together with the people you're teaching. And that's an important part of being able to impart information, to get that relationship going first of all. And one of those um, monks was describing to the prisoners in, in the big, it used to be called um, Kajurina prison. No, it was actually was um, the one over the new one. Yeah, it was Kajurina prison, yes. It was re talking to them uh, for a while, and then they started asking, what's it like in a Buddhist monastery? Because they had no idea what a Buddhist monastery was and what we did. And so he gave them all the information about life in a Buddhist monastery in Australia. He said, we usually get up at four o'clock in the morning, but it's voluntary. You can always get up earlier if you want to. That's true, this morning I got up at three, just that's when I woke up. So you can get up earlier <laughs> if you want to. And that really quite surprised prisoners. You get up that time of the morning, what bad karma did you have to do that you don't <laughs> sleep in? That's the sort of thing they thought that, you know, sleeping in is like a pleasure. So, but what do you do if you get up that early? And he said, we meditate. Well, okay, fair enough. He said, then what do you do for breakfast? And many of the monks don't have breakfast in the morning. And if you do have a breakfast, actually the breakfast gets worse and worse now every morning. <laughs> I'm just looking at one very kind lady who brings breakfast every Tuesday morning. And, <laughs> but it's wonderful to see your joy and happiness. But in those days we didn't have much breakfast at all. We said, oh, in prison, I'm not sure if you know, but in prison they have so much breakfast, whatever you want, basically. I don't know what type of breakfast you like, whether it's um, vegan breakfast, or I don't think they have free range, it doesn't fit in jails. <laughs> free range breakfast. <laughs> or anything, pancakes or whatever. But anyway, so they said, oh, in prison you can have whatever you want. What do you do after breakfast? And I think, you know, you all know, those of you who have visited Bodhinyana Monastery or Dhammasara Monastery, we work. Sometimes we work very hard. What were you doing this morning, Venerable? Uh, sweeping. Sweeping. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you did more than that, weren't you? Yeah, he's an electrician. So, <laughs> some of the monks work really, really hard. <laughs> and so, up until about 10.30, 10.30, try and have a shower, and then we just have our lunch. But the lunch, when we described what a lunch is like for monks, we eat out of a bowl. And I don't know if you've ever seen us eating. You should go and have a look next time you see the monks, even tomorrow morning, just at, uh, at 10.30, we have our arms round, we put the food in the bowl. And especially on Saturdays and Sundays, we don't even put it in the bowl. We say, okay, some of that, and somebody else puts it in the bowl. And sometimes they say, just a little bit, and they put so much in. Sometimes I want a lot, and they put a little bit in. Because <laughs> I don't do it myself. <laughs> and other times, you know what happens, people say, oh, you must have some of this. Even though I don't like it, because they cooked it. <laughs> okay, put it in. <laughs> and so sometimes you do have some amazing concoctions in your bowl. I remember we had a, I don't know if it's still here, we had a fundraising book for the Newbury Buddhist Monastery. There's a, a big um, new retreat centre being built over there. So somebody 
Have we still got any of those books here? The retreat center uh, cookbook? But they, of course, they wanted me to write an introduction or a preface to the book. So I decided to talk about some of my recipes. What Ajahn Brahm has eaten. And I mentioned <laughs> two things which I've eaten, especially when I was in Thailand. A subsistence economy, you just couldn't choose whatever you had. One of them was frog soup. It really was frog soup. Like a big saucepan and they had frogs in it. Just water, no sauce, no salt, no chili, no pepper, just frog soup. And you just, you put one on your spoon, close your eyes, and that's what the villagers ate, you didn't have a choice. I used to be a vegetarian before. That was tough, but you had to just to survive. So that was one of the recipes. <laughs> Frog soup and sticky rice. And the other recipe was um, strawberry ice cream. This was here in uh, Bodhinyana Monastery one day. Strawberry ice cream on spaghetti. <laughs> and I see a lot of you are just going, oh, yuck. How many of you have ever eaten strawberry ice cream on spaghetti bolognese? How many? Come on, confess. I have. <laughs> You're right, it is disgusting. <laughs> but sometimes that's what happens. You know, things get mixed up. You don't expect them to get mixed up. Especially for me, because you know what happens. I take my food in the morning, and uh, then somebody takes my food my bowl up to where I sit. It's just you know, one of the duties of being a senior monk, I have to let someone take my bowl of food up. And I do sometimes ask them, please be careful. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes they're not. <laughs> if it can go wrong, it does go wrong, it all gets mixed up. And I say, well, it gets mixed up in here anyway, what's the point? So anyway, I told, <laughs> I told that to the, the, the prisoners, they were disgusted. Can't they, apparently they told me, even in solitary confinement, you get like a tray. And the tray's got little compartments. It's much worse in Buddhist monasteries, honestly. Then, <laughs> and then what about in the afternoon, what do you do then? And you know, what, they, what do they do in a prison? They, sometimes they play sport. Have a game of footy or tennis or table tennis or something. I know there's a few people here who've stayed a while in monasteries. Do we play sport in monastery? No, I haven't seen it anyway. They're pretty good at hiding it. Maybe on the weekends when I'm not there. <laughs> no, you don't do that. And that's when I started to think, what would happen if we started a BSWA, that's Buddhist Society of Western Australia, footy team? Should we start one? <laughs> if we did, it would have to be done on Buddhist principles. Number one, let go. <laughs> Kindness. Give the ball to somebody else. Don't give yourself. That's attachment. <laughs> if you give it to yourself. <laughs> in other words, it wouldn't work, would it? I did tell somebody actually in the car coming up here today that was it at lunchtime. But the last game of football I ever played, I was at the university. There's something wrong about the sport, which I really didn't like. The only nine of the opposition turned up to play. Eleven of us turned up. So at half time, it was about seven, eight nil. We were ahead. I went up to my captain and said, is it okay if I play for the other side in the second half? to make a game of it. And oh, he said terrible things about me. And he said, I would prefer the game. I don't care who wins, honestly. I would prefer to have a, a wonderful game. It's the game that's more important than winning. And that's always, you know, maybe because I've been a Buddhist for too long. But I prefer that's much more fun. So I said, no, so we can't have a football team. So what time's your dinner, they said. Dinner? 
We don't have dinner in monastery. We eat just in the morning time. And nothing to eat at all in the evening. And that really surprised them too. Because they thought that, you know, you need something in the evening. We don't. Then what do you do then in the evening? Can you, you play cards? <laughs> Have a game of poker? <laughs> no, we don't do that. What do you do then in the evening? Have a guess what the answer was. We meditate. And I think if I remember correctly at the time, the prisoners did ask this uh, monk, don't you ever get tired of meditating? Well, the thing is that monks have to be honest. So they said yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not all the time. But then anyway, what time do you go to bed? Bed? I have a bed here, but you, many of you have been where the place where I live, my cave. Have you seen a bed in my cave? How many people have been in my cave and had a look? Is there a bed there? Just a mattress? Yeah. I don't have a bed. So, <laughs> so they were actually quite surprised. And <laughs> what this, <laughs> you've made, many of you heard the story before, but it's such a good story, it's well worth repeating. One of the prisoners was so surprised how austere a monastery is compared to a prison. And they said, that's terrible where you live. Why don't you come in here and stay with us instead? <laughs> the monk was invited to stay in prison. It's more comfortable and it's true. I've been in prisons many times, teaching and it is more comfortable in a prison than it is in Bodhinyana Buddhist monastery or Dhammasara Nan's monastery. So why is it it's always so hard to get a place to stay there? Why is it there's so many people wanting to come into Bodhinyana monastery and join our Sangha? And why is it so many people are trying so hard to get out of jail? even though jail is much more comfortable. And that got me thinking, this is one of those important parts of what we create. What is the difference between a monastery or a retreat center and a prison? And every time you give a retreat, it always gets full up really quickly. Why? Because there you keep, sort of, you don't have any meal in the evening. You could have have a bed, but there's no air conditionings in the rooms. It's really hot in those rooms. And all you do there is sit and meditate, walking meditation, sitting meditation, you have a couple of talks and stuff. But why is it that people love doing that? And they do. One of the things is, is because everybody who goes on a retreat, a meditation retreat, or goes to Bodhinyana Monastery or Dhammasara Nans Monastery, they want to be there. Their attitude to the place, the way they look at it, the relationship they have with simplicity, is they want to be here. And that was a great example of how our relationship to what we experience changes our world. That's how we make our world a better place. By wanting to be here, instead of wanting to be somewhere else. The whole idea opened up a huge amount of ways of dealing with the difficulties and problems in this world. I don't know how your relationship is with your partner, but are you happy to be with them? They may not be perfect, they rarely are. But are they good enough? Am I happy to be with you? If you are, you are free. If you want to change them, get rid of them, fix them up or whatever, then you find you have a terrible time. Are you happy to be here or do you want to be somewhere else?
One of the points of just how we make our world is even when people are sick. This is one thing which is a huge problem in our world. There's never enough hospitals, there's never enough doctors, there's never enough nurses. There's, every time you build a new hospital, it always gets full throughout the whole world. Why? So what do we do? If you are sick, ill, do you want to be somewhere else? Get rid of the sickness? Or can we be creative and be happy to be here? A lot of times I've done that. It's such a long time, honestly, since I've been in a hospital sick. It was, how many years? 31 years ago since I got admitted to hospital for some sickness. Since that time I've hardly been sick at all. It's a pretty good record, 31 years. But anyhow, you realize that when you're happy to be here, you tend not to get sick. No stress. Physical stress, yes. I work very hard, sometimes I get very tired. Especially at my age. It's my 72nd year. I'm born in the year of the rabbit. It's my year again this year. I figured out one of the other monks reminded me this is the 40th year I've been working for the Buddhist Society of Western Australia. You remember that, Angela, don't you? 1983 I came to Australia. So 40 years. And I remember both you and Siri, I mean, you look uh, a bit younger, please excuse me, those days <laughs> that we do now. <laughs> it's nature. But all that time ago. So using 40 years, you can usually, you know, retire, can't you? Can I retire? <laughs> now, be honest or be kind. Which one? <laughs> okay, I'm not going to retire. You know why I don't retire? Sometimes you get a gold watch or something for 40 years of service. That's the trouble being a monk, you can't accept gold. So I can't even get, get a gold watch or anything. So anyhow, but the reason why you don't feel like retiring is because you're happy to do this. I'm happy to be here. Doesn't matter how long you have to give a talk. And you know what happens after the talk is finished? We ask for any questions. And can people put their hand up? No one puts their hand up. I always assume you've got no questions. But then after I bow here, there's a whole line of people <laughs> with their questions. Oh, I'm happy. So it doesn't really matter what you have to do. It's just your relationship to that problem. And even in a prison, you can compare it to a monastery, and a monastery is more austere. How many of you would volunteer to go into a prison for a couple of years? <laughs> Honestly, I remember this, this Thai monk, he was a bit of a, an, an icon for me. He was set up, and you know, I'm not exaggerating, he was put in jail. He was a number two monk in Thailand at the time, and Chakun Tape Sidi Muni, his name was, and he got on trumped up charges of being a communist, was sent into jail for a couple of years. And once they found out the charges weren't legitimate and he was freed, that he never felt angry at all. He had so much gratitude. Honestly, he wrote this wonderful uh, book about his time in jail. He said, that was one of the two of the best years of my life. There I was in jail. People gave me enough food. It was simple. I slept on the floor. I don't mind sleeping on the floor. 
I never had to give any sermons, I never had to give any blessings, I never had to do any, teach any retreats, I never had to do anything at all. I had <laughs> no responsibilities at all. It was a real retreat. <laughs> and when I heard that, and it was honest, he wasn't making this up, he had no sort of sense of why did they do that to me, this was really unfair, it was unfair. But he made the best out of it. What happened to him was, for most people, was just disgusting. But then he decided to change his attitude towards it and make it a wonderful experience. An experience he really caught up on his meditation, caught up on a lot of his reading, and did a lot of wonderful things. If any of you are stressed out, Maybe I should suggest, <laughs> suggest that. You can see what I'm, I'm talking about. How we can see what happens to us in life, and some of it is not our fault, some of it is your fault. But you know, we all make mistakes from time to time, so don't worry about the mistakes you made. They're in the past, you can't change them, but you have the consequences. But all you can make something of the consequences you can actually relate to them in a different way, in a positive way. How can I make use of these experiences? In a couple of weeks, we have the Solaris Cancer Care. I'm giving another talk at their place. Every year I go there. And that one of the reasons I go there, the Cancer Care place over in um, Cottesloe, is that I learned so much. I'm supposed to be teaching, but what I learned there was, it's quite surprising how many people who have been through cancer, either their loved ones you know, have gone through it, or have died, or they're going through it, how many of them told me this was the best thing that ever happened to them? And that's quite shocking. You know, if you've had some experiences of uh, family and friends dying of cancer, but these are real people and they tell you that, and they're honest, the best thing that ever happened to me. Unpleasant, physically, but they learned so much, and it was worth it. For how they learned about you know, the importance of things like kindness, and valuing this moment, and not being too negative in life and being grateful for the small things which they had. They learned so much. You wouldn't wish it on anybody, but if it comes to you, see it in a good light. A beautiful light. And you can do that. So there's so many other sicknesses in our life. You can get negative and depressed about it. Or you can see the beautiful side of it. Even I recall when we, we still have our Armadale meditation group, but it's always online now. They've got it on Zoom every Tuesday, and they just, they love that. It's easy to arrange. But I remember going there, and uh, in this was in Armadale Hospital, and talking to one of the men there who was chronically depressed. And then I just started talking to him, and I asked him, said, well, you know, you're depressed, how does your family treat you? Oh, so they're really nice to me. They let me sleep in, I don't need to go to work. And even this morning, yes, he said he was a bit fat, but they let him have ice cream for breakfast. How many of you eat ice cream for breakfast? How many of you would like to eat ice cream for breakfast? <laughs> <laughs> And I was going to put my hand up, but then if I put my hand up, I'll get it tomorrow. <laughs> so don't do that to me. <laughs> so, anyway. <laughs> so, but he said, yeah, he got ice cream, he got double portions. I said, yes, exactly. That's what happens to you if people say you're depressed. They do anything to cheer you up. So if you're depressed and you say, you know, I think I need some ice cream for breakfast this morning, then you get it. And you start to see the benefits of being depressed. 
And then I told him the secret. I said, listen, when you start to get out of your depression, don't tell your wife. <laughs> don't tell anybody. <laughs> Enjoy it for as long as you can. Now you can see what I'm saying here. It's your attitude which you have towards that illness. It's just how you regard these things. What you do with what you've got. Even just, my goodness me, when people had the height of the COVID crisis, so many people had to go in quarantine. So many people you know, couldn't go to work and they started complaining, said, this is terrible, I lost my job. And I looked at them and said, last week you were complaining how stressed out you were. <laughs> and you never had any time for anything. Now you've got lots of time. Why is it people always complain instead of always having gratitude? If you've lost a job, you have time. Time to enjoy yourself. And say, well, I've got no money. It doesn't take any money to come down to Bodhinyana Monastery, come here on a Friday night. It doesn't cost any money just to, well, maybe a little bit of money to go to the beach and have a nice walk on the, the ocean front in the afternoon. And it's a nice day. Doesn't, does that cost any money? A little bit, but not much. And you can have time to do that. Most people can't do that because they're so busy working. And you have lots and lots of time to really catch up on your sleep and really relax. And how many people can sleep in the morning till eight o'clock, nine o'clock without really being afraid of uh, being late for work? So if you lost your job. <laughs> <laughs> See the benefits in whatever happens. It's, so this is where we start to create another world. We create our world with the attitudes which we give to our life. You can always see something positive in it. Make the best out of what you've got. And of course, I must admit, thank you so much for being, for my good karma being born when I did and going off to uh, become a monk in Thailand when I was only 23. The nicest thing of that was, yes, many people think they can learn from foreign cultures or cultures which are foreign to them. But the thing of being a monk, you had a role in society, you were part of the society, you were part of the village. And so that gave you an entrance to know how people thought. And some of the times the, when other people were going to a place like Thailand, I got criticized for this, why are you going off to places like Northeast Thailand and going on arms round and all these people were so poor, they were feeding you every day. You know, you should be doing something, getting a nice job as a theoretical physicist and just sending all your money to these poor villagers and making them happier. How wrong that attitude was. Because you saw the people who were doing social work in those villages. They were being tolerated. The monks were being loved. And were being really part of things. We got an understanding. I learned so much from those villagers. So this wasn't a fact that we needed food, well, we did need food, but not that much. The point was that everyone in that village, they need, needed to give. The idea of serving and learning how to give to others was something which I learned from those poor villagers, how important it was to share things. And even these days, one of the greatest joys I have as a monk is actually to serve you. You've heard all these talks before and all the, the jokes. I'll tell them to you again. <laughs> so, 
stimulated because <laughs> I because you need to give. There's a few things you can give. And well, what's those occasions? I think I said this to the monks or somewhere recently. It could have been here last week. I'm not sure. One of my great memories was of just walking through an airport. I think it was a Singapore airport, and seeing this poor traveller trying to get some sleep just on one of the benches. She's obviously between flights and she wasn't doing very well trying to get some sleep. So she was tossing and turning and in my bag I had iPads with the eye shades. And so I just said, do you want one of these? And she was about half asleep. Oh yeah, thank you. And so I gave her just an eye shade so she could help sleep much better. It's a tiny thing, but I always remembered that. Maybe I really helped that lady have a bit of sleep. And so she knew there were kind people in this world. Never seen her before, never seen her since. But those are the sorts of things which I love doing whichever, whenever I can, even this evening. Just people are supposed to respect their teachers, and you do. But nevertheless, I managed to open the door in the reception area and ask someone else to come through before I did. I opened the door for them. <laughs> one of them did. The other one said, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I love it when you go in first. If I can do a service to you, open the door for you or something. It's a small thing, but it makes me happy. Why? A little bit of joy, doing things a little bit differently. It's not out of disrespect, it's out of kindness and gentleness and I love doing stuff like that. And I think many people do as well. The attitude which we have, what real respect is. And that's one of the reasons why, even on simple things, when people come to Buddhist temples, they wonder, you know, all these traditions which we have, why do people have to take their shoes off when they come in the temple? Why? I mentioned that before, the answer to that is, it means that if I tell a really bad joke, you've got nothing to throw at me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. <laughs> or just why do why do you have a big Buddha statue over there? And why do people bow to the Buddha statues? And that's something which you've heard me say before, but it really needs to be impressed upon people. The reason why we bow is not we're bowing to a, a piece of metal, thinking that by bowing you get some sort of psychic special blessings back. It is quite rational. When I bow to a Buddha, I bow to virtue, peace and compassion. It's what the Buddha represents for me. You can make up your own ideas of what it means to you. Because those things, they're the heart of spirituality, not the things, they're the attitudes, the relationships. And so, you know, because I'm a Buddhist monk and you know, read all these stories about the Buddha and been taught them and practiced them, you know, the virtue, the goodness, the trust which you have. Isn't it wonderful, just as I say, that somebody snoring at the, during the meditation, isn't it wonderful you can fall asleep in meditation and know that no one's going to disturb you? That virtue, that goodness, it's really important when we look after one another. And just the kindness, sometimes the compassion and kindness I've seen as a monk, it just brings tears to my eyes. And I must admit, one of the greatest acts of kindness was of this out-of-work nurse. She was struggling to get by. But nevertheless, when she heard that there was uh, a Laotian refugee, it happened in the, the room over there many, many years ago, one of the Laotian refugees had just got a telegram from her mum, actually from her family members. Her mother was dying. But in Oregon, 
in uh, United States. And she was here in Perth, this re refugee. She had no means of getting to see her mother for one last time. And so she was crying her eyes out. And the lady I'm talking about, she was organizing the flowers for the hall. She stopped doing that, reached into her um, handbag, took out her checkbook. In those days we used checkbooks. And just signed a blank check for her. If it didn't him out, you go and see your mum. This is in you know, United States. It was a beautiful act of kindness, and especially I knew that nurse out of work because she'd ruined her back. Didn't really have much money, but she'll find enough there to pay for this woman's air ticket. And that sort of compassionate blank check was beautiful. And that's why my second vow is always to kindness, virtue, kindness. Actually, no, it's not, I've got it the wrong way around. The second one is for peace, for meditation. Imagine how many people come here on a, a Friday night and sit quietly here. It's amazing just how peaceful you are with so many people here. And how you can take some of that peace and that stillness back home with you. Never underestimate the power of peace. The power of stillness, going for a walk by the ocean, but not saying anything doesn't mean you don't care for one another. Same on retreats, we always have this noble silence, but you can always smile at one another. And that smile is just worth so much. People care about you, but you don't get into these complicated speech things, which usually mess up relationships. So this is how we can create a beautiful world, no matter what's happening to us. You may be poor, but nevertheless, you can still be kind. You can still be virtuous. You can still look at this world and think this is a great place to be, a great place to raise your kids. Why not? We change our attitude towards things. Earlier I was just saying, as a scientist, when we're talking about or somebody was asking, uh, but I was just saying my experience in theoretical physics, fundamental particle physics, that was part of what I was up to. What is this world made of? It's not made of stuff. The stuff, the things in this world are hardly anything at all. It's mostly space, emptiness. But the most important part of what I call stuff, material stuff, are the forces between things. Those are more fundamental than things itself. The forces, the relationships which matter has with other pieces of matter. Same with you. The most important truth is not stuff but how you relate to stuff. What you do with possessions, what you do with your time, what you do with your, your kindness. One of the lovely things, different than money, kindness, you can give as much as you want. You never run out. Kindness is just like, uh, you can light so many other candles from one lit candle. You never run out of the flame. The heat is always there to light more. So this is actually how we can look at the kindness and the goodness of this world. And we can create a huge amount of positive things. That's why I get a, a bit disappointed if you look at the news. They always say negative things in the news. Who's doing something wrong? Who's doing this stupid thing? But there's so much goodness in this world, so much kindness in this world, so much virtue in this world. Never forget that. And then it uplifts you. It's wonderful to be in a temple where most of you, I don't know your names, are not interested in your names, they're just interested in, in you.
I'm not sure where you come from, not that interested where you come from. And now whoever it is wants to come into this hall, please come in. In other words, without judgment, but treating human beings as human beings, being kind to them and saying you're all welcome in this wonderful journey called life. And however you you live in this life, you know, we always got something to share with one another. And that kindness, that care is the most important part. And if we have lots of kindness and care and virtue in our Buddhist community here, then we're a very, very wealthy organization. Thank you for listening. <laughs> All over the place. It's, it's good. <laughs> okay. Any questions from the floor? Okay, I'll do some questions from uh, the internet first of all. Whoops. Okay. okay. From Jakarta, my brother was getting laid off and struggling financially. I already tried to help him. Why I can't, why I can't help of feeling guilty because I'm not living in a situation like, like his one? Look, okay, you don't have, you got laid off, you don't have much money, but after a while, if you get laid off, you usually get a job again. And if he does get laid off, he doesn't get a job, what he should do instead is become a monk, yes. <laughs> That's one thing I can guarantee. If you're a monk, we've got job security. <laughs> and also job fulfillment is very, very good as well. The pay is terrible. <laughs> Reti <laughs> retirement is out of the question, actually, but real retirement is out of this world. So, think positive about it. You get laid off, struggling financially, you can always find something if you've got a positive mind. Start a little group of uh, a laid-off club. <laughs> and charge all the other people laid off. <laughs> I don't know. There's always something you can do somewhere. I, will, I think if you if you've got a good enough mind. Ajahn I'm disabled and often need accommodations to do things. I often sense people are burdened by this, so sit out of things I want to do. How to be considerate of others' feelings than my own? To be honest with you, that most people are very happy to serve and to help you. But a lot of disabled people feel they don't want to bother other people. You're not bothering other people. If you are disabled, you're giving others an opportunity to do a wonderful, you know, kind act. <laughs> so please, if you are disabled, don't get well too soon. Give people a great opportunity to look after and serve you. It's a beautiful thing to do to help others and be kind to others. That's what I always feel. Not a burden at all. But it's, and I must apologize to each one of you. You know, this is my confession. And I know many of you would love to look after me, but I'm too healthy, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll try and do better this year, to be more sick. <laughs> you, get, you know what I mean? Look, even Fung over there, every time I see her, I don't mind if my glasses are clean or not clean, but I always take them off and give them to you to clean up. It's not that my glasses need cleaning, but that you need to clean them. You understand? So even if you <laughs> if if you're not if you are at all sort of um, disabled, please come into this place. We'll try and look after you and do as much as we possibly can. You're giving us the, the opportunity to serve and help. And that's important. Oh, from Borneo, great. Help us comprehend mindfulness. How do you interpret it, like the term being here, not wanting to go anywhere? How do you do this when your present is not, ple present is not pleasant? Is it not pleasant? If it can be pleasant, uh, even inside a jail, even suffering from cancer, 
you know, it's weird, you can always see something pleasant in things. And once you see something pleasant in it, by being kind to things, it changes the whole experience. This is what I mean, you can create your world. So that's one of the reasons why, even when you are sick or things are going wrong, see the benefits and opportunities it gives you and take those benefits. Don't just look at life like everybody else looks at life. So, the mindfulness, being here not wanting to go anywhere, it's amazing how often you can actually do that. Even if you're tired. Look, this is one of the things which I do if I can't go to sleep at night. I don't know why, maybe because, you know, the changing places, I've got you know, two places here, I, the bedroom here where I go to sleep in, the bedroom over in Bodhinyana Monastery where I go to sleep in, when you go overseas you're sleeping somewhere else, you go to Jhana Grove you sleep somewhere else. I don't know, what well, first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is find out what country I'm in. <laughs> but if I do have trouble sleeping, the trick is, you just you lay down there, make yourself comfortable, and you say, I'm happy to be here, even if I can't go to sleep. And you know, it really is. My bed, is, if somebody just a mattress on the floor, it's one of the most comfortable places I've ever been. You can tuck yourself in, it's nice and cozy, you've got your favorite pillow there, snuggle up. And when you're comfortable being there, then of course you don't want to go to sleep. And when you don't want to go to sleep, the next thing you know you're waking up in the morning. Honestly, that's how it works. Give it a try. So being here and I wanted to go to see the positive part of it. From Germany, could you please differentiate between mind and brain? Oh, okay, yeah, that's great. Okay, that's a really big question give a talk on that. Mind and brain. The brain is just this physical organ. And it's just, a lot of time, it's just how you learn to deal with the world. It's like the mind is in the background sometimes. And there's all these amazing cases. I love collecting these cases of like the boy with no brain. That was Professor John Lorber, Sheffield University, quite a few years ago, but it was true. They was doing some research on the shape of human skulls and as one of his subjects, university student, he's actually a graduate student, who got first class honours in mathematics and, and was now doing research. Really ordinary guy, had a girlfriend, very well balanced. And when he had a slightly misshaped brain, they found out that he actually, no, a misshaped skull, he didn't have a brain. 1% cortex, that was all. The rest was cerebral fluid. No way in the world could that explain that he was a genius in mathematics and very well balanced. The boy with no brain. Alive. Functioning. And just the same as you and I. So, I usually ask people to, to do this little exercise. Please move your head back and forth. And if you can hear sloshing between your ears, you may too have no brain to sell fluid. <laughs> it's only fun. But there are people there with not enough brain to justify the fact that they are aware. So what happens? That's the mind working. That's also why when you get really old and start dying, why is it that sometimes people, even with... Um, Dementia or Alzheimer's, they don't remember you at all. But then, just before they die, they know, oh, Nicholas, how have you been? They remember everything. And I forget if this doctor is here this evening, but there's one of the doctors, and I said this some years ago, they came up and told me their story that uh, when one of their patients started dying, and the, the signs were there, the dying process had started. He rushed to her, his bedside, he was in a coma, wasn't um, conscious, so he thought. And then 
he had the little book, the address book by his bedside and started ringing his close family relations and got to his daughter, uh, I forget the name now, sometimes I remember it, uh, say Sarah, so he called her, Sarah, you better come to the hospital straight away, your dad is dying. And he opened his eyes and said, please tell Sarah how much I love her. And then he died. Totally impossible, suddenly aware. And then before, for hours beforehand, was you know, not aware of anything at all. It's called terminal lucidity. And that's where the brain is stopped, but the mind is taking over. That's what the Buddhists say. And of course, the mind just carries on uh, to a new birth. It just gets reborn. And of course, when a person, a kid is, oh, I better stop soon, otherwise I'll keep going on for hours on this. When a kid, uh, we get reborn, sometimes the kids speak. Only a couple of weeks old. My favorite, it's, it's apparently true, US maternity ward, I think it was in, uh, Washington State, kid came out of the womb, umbilical cord still attached, and as soon as the kid came out, looked around, and said, oh no, not again. <laughs> Imagine, you can remember just what you went through, you've got to go through all that all over again. Going to school, going dating, getting a job, <laughs> all over again. Would you want to do that? <laughs> oh, that kid was smart. Last question. Why did the Buddha refuse, oh my goodness, why did the Buddha refuse to allow women to become fully ordained bhikkhunis? It is mentioned that he refused Ananda's request thrice. I think the third time he allowed it. Why he was supposed to be saying uh, two or three times, say no, I'm not sure, but the most important thing was, it was permitted and allowed. And it was part of his um, mission in life. Here I go, one of these other passions which I have. It was one of the missions of the Buddha's life. He said after he became enlightened, Mara came up to him and said, look, great, okay, I admit it, you're enlightened, marvelous. But don't go teaching. Teaching is really a pain in the butt. It is, you know. <laughs> instead, instead, just you know, live quietly and just go off into Parinibbana, disappear. And the Buddha said, no, I will not um, disappear into Parinibbana, actually disappear, until I've established a strong Sangha of monks, strong Sangha of bhikkhunis, nuns, strong lay Buddhist community, a strong lay men's Buddhist community and lay women's Buddhist community, the four parasites, the four groups. When I've done that, then I will go. That's what he said. And the Buddha came to see him at the Charpala Shrine in Wisali, uh, about 45 years later, and Mara said, well, you've done all of that now. There's a very strong bhikkhuni sangha, very strong bhikkhu sangha, strong laymen, strong laywomen. And Buddha said, okay, yeah, fair enough. So the Buddha made a resolution to give up his life in three months, which he did at Kusanara. It was his mission. And that's you know, from the Buddhist texts. So the Buddha wanted, that was part of his, if you say a mission in life, that was his mission in life to get equity. Now this is a Buddha, not a politician. Equity was just common sense. If you have compassion, kindness to all living beings, it's, it's obvious. So anyway, that's what we're doing. And we have a very strong Bhikkhuni Sangha over in Dhammasara. And what, yeah. <laughs> and one over in, in England, and one over in uh, that's Ayachanda, and one over in uh, Sydney, that's in Santi Monastery. It's growing. Even in Bangladesh, no, Bhutan, had a big ordination of bhikkhunis recently. Any Bhutanese here this evening?
in Bhutan. Yeah, they've got it too, yeah. All the advanced nations have. <laughs> Very good. Okay. So, any questions from the f again from the floor before we finish off? That's it. Okay, so after we do the, the chanting, you'll all go home or we will run up. <laughs> okay. So, thank you again for coming. I hope you enjoyed this evening. And please remember, you create the world much more so than anything else. Arahan Sama Sambodo Bhagawa Bodang Bhagawantang Abiwa Devi Suakato Bhagavata Dhamma Dhammanamasami Supatipano Bhagavato Sawaka Sango Sangang Namami Okay, wish you all a happy evening. Take care. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs>